In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. All that we have is given to us by God, freely, for Jesus' sake. And that is why in Luther's meal prayer, we we attach to these words from Psalm 145, the following words also. Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us in these thy gifts, which we receive from thy bountiful goodness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us everything we have. He feeds us, clothes us, and provides all that we need daily to support this body and life. He knows what we need and gives what we need, but God's mighty works are hidden. He hides his mighty works by working through ordinary means that require our effort and manipulation. He hides his work in our work. It often feels and seems like our effort is the main thing in the process of getting ourselves clothed and fed, as though our manipulation of God's creation were the effective part in getting done what needs getting done. But that is not so. As another psalm teaches us, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. God gives sleep to those he loves because he tells those he loves to work hard. He tells us to rest because he knows we need it. God doesn't need us to work any more than he needs us to sleep. Our working feeds us no more than our sleeping clothes us. It is we who need to work and it is we who need to sleep because God wills it. It is his work alone that prospers our work, and it is by his kindness alone that we are invited to and find the ability to rest. We see, of course, a correlation between our work and what needs to get done, and it should be so. But God is not forced to bless our labor because of how valuable our work is in and of itself. No, it is by pure grace that God blesses our labor. We notice how more work equals more productivity and that less work equals less productivity. Well, fine. But we only notice this because God punishes laziness. We think we see cause and effect, but it is largely an illusion. How many work tirelessly and remain poor? How many do nothing but relax and get rich? Yet wonders still by God are wrought, too, who raises the poor and casts down the mighty. The injustice that we see proves that it's all an illusion. In truth, all depends on God's will. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. That's true. The reason we have to work is because God tells us to It's that simple. He made us to work. He tells us to work. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves, so it is he who feeds and clothes us and supports us in any way, in every way, with or without any cooperative effort on our part. 
If God wanted to, he could cause a feast to grow on our table every time we sat down to eat. If God wanted to, he could cause clothing to wrap around our bodies as often as he let it get cold. If he chose to feed us and clothe us in this way, and in this way without any participation on our part, prove that he is our caring father in heaven, he could do it. But he doesn't want to. That's why he doesn't. He didn't even want to do this in paradise. He wills that we work. He wants us to enjoy his work for us by teaching us to work with him. He wants us to participate in his feeding and clothing and to take part in his work for us. Now, this isn't so that we might boast in how well we take care of ourselves. It's so that we can discover the futility of our contributions and boast instead in how well he takes care of us. St. Paul writes, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But instead we worry about these very things. The opposite of being content is worrying. We cannot be content if we imagine we earn from God what we work for. That's the secret. We simply don't. We earn from each other, to be sure, but not from God. We can only be content if we learn to believe what we sing. All depends on our possessing God's abundant grace and blessing, though all earthly wealth depart. We cannot be content if we suspect God is cheating us. If we think that way, we'll end up cheating one another too. Mammon does not let us love one another because mammon does not let us trust in God. Mammon requires that we love only ourselves. He is a bad master who demands we add worry to our work with the promise that we might in the end be rid of both. But he's a liar. Mammon can provide neither rest nor contentedness. Mammon's power to to lie lies in our heart's desire to believe the lie. Because our hearts do not by nature fear, love, and trust in God. Mammon's great power of seduction is that he promises that if we work for him, we will become our own masters. But then he just makes us his slaves. We can either work for mammon and gain nothing, or we can work with God and learn to love him. Work with God? God wants us to participate with him in two ways. First, he wants us to participate with our bodies in the means by which he feeds and clothes us. We call this participation work. He also wants us to participate with our hearts and minds. We call this participation faith. God wants us to work. He created our bodies to work. God wants us to trust his kindness and generosity. He created our souls to know him as the source of all good. Work and faith. Participation does not mean that we earn our share. 
It means that he gives freely and that we gladly invest ourselves in receiving it, even while acknowledging that it earns nothing. This is true with our participation in work, as we have just covered, and it is true in our participation in faith. Neither our work nor our faith earn anything, but by both we find great joy in receiving freely. We who are saved by grace through what we are given to believe are also God's workmanship, his handiwork, to do the works which he has prepared for us to do. That's from Ephesians 2. But our work earns nothing. It teaches us many good things, though. God who provides all things with or without our work requires that we work so that we might discover how we depend on him rather than how much we must depend on ourselves. He also wants us to discover how others depend on us so that we might serve and love our neighbor. As St. Paul also wrote to the Ephesians, let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his own hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. As with food for the children of man, so it is also with the children of man themselves. God could cause children to sprout from the nurseries that we prepare for them. He could send children by storks. He could make children materialize from dust and light in the waiting wombs or laps of their mothers. But he doesn't do that for one reason, because he doesn't want to. As with the participation he commands in putting food on the table, so also with the participation he commands in, cre in, in creating another mouth to feed. God wills that we labor. We do not choose our works. He prepares them for us. Nor do we always choose our neighbors. He prepares those as well. And he gives us neighbors for whom we must labor. We think we make babies because we see how God manages to create them. Kind of like we think we feed ourselves because we see what work needs to be done. But God makes babies by telling us to participate in the process. We think we make babies because we find pleasure in the process and because we know how to isolate that pleasure while preventing God from creating hungry mouths if we don't want him to. We think wrong. Seeing how God makes babies and seeing what work he requires of us in the process does not mean that we make babies. No more than seeing the apparent cause and effect of our hard work means that we feed and clothe ourselves. God does. As the same Psalm 127 continues, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Happy is the man who has something worth working for. 
Happy is the man who has a lot of work to do. Miserable is the man who works only for himself and not to serve others. To say no to children who demand our money and energy is to say no to God who gives us our money and energy. He is our Father who loves children. Labor is good. God commands that we labor because he loves us. Jesus commands that little children be brought to him. God made us to labor. He made us to trust him and to teach our children to trust him as well. If it were not for our sin and the curse of God against our sin, labor would always be pleasant and cheerful. And we know from experience how true this is. Just consider with me two points. One about men in general and one about women in general. Take a man's work away or convince him to sit idle all day and you rob him of his dignity. You rob him of that which better men get to brag about and take pride in. Give him all the riches in the world and you put him on cloud nine. But then take away his ability to work and you shoot him out of the sky. By taking away his work, you rob a man of where he derives most of his pleasure. Most of his pleasure, yes. And this takes into full account what other fantasies might be promising easier pleasure in his mind. But every man knows it. If he does not work, he is no man. He knows it. No pleasure can can compare with the pleasure a man gains from working hard. He trusts in his labor. Even beer tastes better after a day of chopping wood and hauling brush. What work is for a man, so children are for a woman. Take a woman's children away or else convince her to pursue what promises greater reward from the world instead of having any, and you rob her of her dignity. Give her all the praise in the world and she'll be flattered. But if you don't honor her and depend on her and thank her for being who and what she is, well, the flattery will falter and she'll feel how it flees as easily as it flowed. Take from a woman the relationship she has with her children or those who take the place of children, and you'll rob her of what happier women get to boast about and take pride in. You'll rob her of where she derives the most pleasure, most of her pleasure, yes. And this takes into full account what ambitions promise more honor and respect in her mind. She knows it. She lives for her children. She finds her most satisfying purpose in seeing her efforts, whether they are inside the home or outside the home. In either case, when she sees either her domestic or professional efforts prove beneficial to those sweet little neighbors of hers that she holds most tenderly to her bosom, she knows it. She trusts in what she is able to do for her children. Even her sleep is sweeter when she knows that they are safely tucked in and happy. It is therefore worth pondering that when God cursed Adam and Eve in the garden, he cursed them both where it hurt each of them the most. He promised pain and sorrow and vanity Precisely in those two things that man and woman each respectively enjoyed the most. Man's labor and a woman's labor. 
We call them by the same name, labor. It is what we take pride in. It is what we worry about. God cursed the ground and required man to till it and to see it produced for him only by the sweat of his face. He cursed pregnancy and childbirth and required woman to endure great pain in the process and dependence on her man for support. What he created man and woman each respectively to find their greatest earthly honor and pleasure in, he cursed for their sake. With these poetically purposeful curses, God was teaching them, as he still teaches us, to humble ourselves and to teach us the futility of our own work and contribution. And so he teaches us to turn our hearts to him for the help we need, to repent of our foolish self-reliance, to repent of our notion that we can be our own God if we learn to have as much control as we can, to repent of our selfish control over our lives and to expect from his gracious hand all that he has promised. Now, dear Christians, if it is worth pondering how God cursed man's labor and woman's labor in two unique but related ways, it is God's will above all that we ponder also that promise of his blessing that we should seek first. We should seek it first. How fitting then that he spoke it first. For before God cursed man and woman, he cursed the devil. By doing so, he made a promise. Before he cursed their labor and our labor, he assured them of his own labor. He prepared what man and woman were to flee to and meditate upon and hope in as often as their own plans fell apart and life's uncertainties distressed them. He prepared for them what they should seek first. Before their labor was declared futile and bound to disappoint, the labor of Christ was declared certain and bound to save before he even had the heart to teach them what sorrow to expect in this earthly life of labor. He turned to the serpent and said, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you, your, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so in this way, God promised us an end to our labor. No, rather, no, he promised that the futility of our labor would cease. For we are still his workmanship. Will we not still labor? Do we not still labor? And why? Because we will starve otherwise? No. Because God has told us to. Yes. Because God has still attached great satisfaction to what he tells us to do. And he gives us a good conscience in the, in the process. Whether now, while our labor is still unpleasant and we must live by faith in the salvation that God has prepared, or also then, when we live by sight in the life to come. And all we do will be pure joy. In either case, we find a good conscience and happiness in the work that God has given us to do. Not because everything pans out, it doesn't. Not because by working harder we extract more from God's stingy hand, no. God knows what we need. 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So in the meantime, God still wills that we work. He has cursed both the ground and the womb to drive us always to the work that God promised his son would do. He promised to join our flesh and blood by calling his son the seed of the woman. He became for us the second Adam, the true measure of a man who loves his wife, teaches her, provides for her, protects her, and loves her children, no matter how much pain and expense they cost him. He will return again, and he will give whatever more we must spend in order for his children to be blessed. His wife and our mother is the holy Christian church where the gospel is preached. We are his and he is ours. The water that cleanses his bride is the water that gives us new birth. Baptism gives new birth to us by joining us to what Jesus, the Son of Mary, accomplished by his death and resurrection. Jesus overcomes the curse in order to replace the curse with blessing. He sanctified both the womb and the tomb in order to redeem us from, from the curse upon both man and woman both the earth and childbirth. He who grew in his mother's womb to live the worry-free life of trust that we have failed to live, this same Jesus also produced a new and even better life in the tomb from which he rose after dying for all our doubts, humbly from the womb, but in glory from the tomb. Jesus was born for the very same reason he rose again to end the curse, and to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. He gives us victory over the futility of all our labor, over death, sadness, stress, and over a bad conscience laden with guilt and regret. He gives this victory to us by teaching us not to worry. Not just telling us not to, but showing us how. He tells us what to seek first when the stress of earning money or losing it bears heavy on our worried heads. He tells us what he has sought and purchased for us when the stress of raising children and providing for their future happiness swells our hearts with anxiety. He tells us not to worry by proving that he loves us. And he proves why we shouldn't be but worry by, by presenting the creator of all things and the provider of all needs as none other than our God and Father, whom he has reconciled to us and with whom we have peace by his blood, which he shed to save us. And Jesus tells us to seek his kingdom of grace by seeking his righteousness and the forgiveness of all our sins. For this he was born, for this he worked. And neither his birth nor his labor were futile. By his labor, Jesus has redeemed the earth and the womb. He has overcome the curse upon our labor. It is for his sake that the earth responds to our manipulation of it, though by the sweat of our face. And it is for his sake, too, that children are born and raised to know him as their savior, albeit with great pain. And do these two labors not continue to give occasion for our greatest doubts? We worry. Are these not what we continue to worry about? And this is for men and women only in general, you know. Obviously, men, women worry about work and wages, and men worry about children too. But this is no credit to either, what we worry about. 
for we should not worry. We should cast all our cares on him who cares for us. And we should help one another do the same. By knowing what each other worries about, we are better able to help one another trust in God. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, if your wife worries when she shouldn't, if your husband worries where he shouldn't, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If this command is for all of us who dwell together in the household of faith, how much more so is it commanded of us for our homes to be themselves households of faith? So as often as a man worries about the things that men worry about, wives, be spiritual, trust in Christ, comfort your husband. As often as a woman worries about the things that women are going to worry about, men, be spiritual, trust in Christ, teach her the gospel. As often as children worry, men and women bear one another's burdens and show them who bore theirs. For each of us must bear our own load, foremost by directing each other to Christ who bore the world's load, who has made peace between us and our God, who knows what we need and will surely provide. We and our children are more precious to him than many sparrows. He who clothes the lilies with beauty that fades clothes us with the righteousness of Christ that abides forever. So rather than worry, let us work. Not so that we might earn what we worry about, but because it is all already in the hands of him who loves us and will certainly provide both here and in the life to come. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.